Chapter Twenty Six of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mogg's Purity and the Rights of Labor. Mr. Trigger had hinted that Ontario Moggs would be a thorn in the flesh of Mr. Westmacott's supporters at Percycross, and he had been right. Ontario was timid, hesitating, and not unfrequently browbeaten in the social part of his work at the election. Though he made great struggles, he could neither talk, nor walk, nor eat, nor sit, as though he were the equal of his colleague. But when they came to politics and political management, there was no holding him. He would make speeches when speeches were not held to be desirable by his committee, and he was loud upon topics as to which it was thought that no allusion whatever should have been made. To talk about the ballot had from the first been conceded to Moggs. Mr. Westmacott was, indeed, opposed to the ballot but it had been a matter of course that the candidate of the people should support that measure. The ballot would have been a safety valve, but Moggs was so cross-grained, ill-conditioned, and uncontrollable that he would not let the ballot suffice him. The ballot was almost nothing to him. Strikes and bribery were his great subjects. The beauty of the one and the ugliness of the other the right of the laborer to combine with his brother laborers, to make his own terms for his labor, was the great lesson he taught. The suicidal iniquity of the laborer in selling that political power which he should use to protect his labor was the source of his burning indignation. That labor was the salt of the earth he told the men of Percycross very often, and he told them as often that manliness and courage were necessary to make that salt productive. Gradually, the men of Percycross, some said that they were only the boys of Percycross, clustered round him and learned to like to listen to him. They came to understand something of the character of the man who was almost too shamefaced to speak to them while he was being dragged round their homes on his canvas but whom nothing could repress when he was on his legs with a crowd before him. It was in vain that the managing agent told him that he would not get a vote by his spouting and shouting. On such occasions he hardly answered a word to the managing agent, but the spouting and shouting went on just the same, and was certainly popular among the bootmakers and tanners. Mr. Westmacott was asked to interfere, and did so once in some mild fashion, but Ontario replied that, having been called to this sphere of action, he could only do his duty according to his own lights. The young men's presidents and secretaries and chairmen were for a while somewhat frightened, having been assured by the managing men of the Liberal Committee that the election would be lost by the furious insanity of their candidate but they decided upon supporting Moggs, having found that they would be deposed from their seats if they discarded him. At last, when the futile efforts to control Moggs had been maintained with patience for something over a week, when it still wanted four or five days to the election, an actual split was made in the liberal camp. Moggs was turned adrift by the Westmacottian faction, 
bills were placarded about the town explaining the cruel necessity for such action and describing moggs as a revolutionary firebrand and now there were three parties in the town mr trigger rejoiced over this greatly with mr griffenbottom if they haven't been and cut their throats now it is a wonder he said over and over again even sir thomas caught something of the feeling of triumph and began almost to hope that he might be successful nevertheless the number of men who could not quite make up their minds as to what duty required of them till the day of the election was considerable and mr pyle triumphantly whispered into mr trigger's ear his conviction that after all things weren't going to be changed at percycross quite so easily as some people supposed when moggs was utterly discarded by the respectable leaders of the liberal party in the borough turned out of the liberal inn at which were the headquarters of the party and refused the rights of participating in the liberal breakfasts and dinners which were there provided moggs felt himself to be a triumphant martyr his portmanteau and hat-box were carried by an admiring throng down to the cordwainer's arms a house not indeed of the highest repute in the town and here a separate committee was formed mr westmacott did his best to avert the secession but his supporters were inexorable the liberal tradesmen of percycross would have nothing to do with a candidate who declared that inasmuch as a man's mind was more worthy than a man's money labor was more worthy than capital and that therefore the men should dominate and rule their masters this was a doctrine necessarily abominable to every master tradesman the men were to decide how many hours they would work what recreation they would have in what fashion and at what rate they would be paid and what proportion of the profit should be allowed to the members and masters and creators of the firm that was the doctrine that moggs was preaching the tradesmen of percycross whether liberal or conservative did not understand much in the world of politics but they did understand that such a doctrine as that if carried out would take them to a very gehenna of revolutionary desolation and so moggs was banished from the northern star the inn at which mr westmacott was living and was forced to set up his radical staff at the cordwainer's arms in one respect he certainly gained much by this persecution the record of his election doings would have been confined to the columns of the percycross herald had he carried on his candidature after the usual fashion but as it was now his doings were blazoned in the london newspapers the daily news reported him and gave him an article all to himself and even the times condescended to make an example of him and to bring him up as evidence that revolutionary doctrines were distasteful to the electors of the country generally the fame of ontario moggs certainly became more familiar to the ears of the world at large than it would have done had he continued to run in a pair with mr westmacott and that was everything to him polly neefit must hear of him now that his name had become a household word in the london newspapers and in another respect he gained much all personal canvassing was now at an end for him 
There could be no use in his going about from house to house asking for votes. Indeed, he had discovered that to do so was a thing iniquitous in itself, a demoralizing practice tending to falsehood, intimidation, and corruption, a thing to be denounced. And he denounced it. Let the man of Percycross hear him, question him in public, learn from his spoken words what were his political principles, and then vote for him if they pleased. He would condescend to ask a vote as a favor from no man. It was for them, rather, to ask him to bestow upon them the gift of his time and such ability as he possessed. He took a very high tone indeed in his speeches, and was saved the labor of parading the streets. During these days he looked down from an immeasurable height on the truckling, mean, sordid doings of Griffinbottom, Underwood, and Westmacott. A huge board had been hoisted up over the somewhat low frontage of the cordwainer's arms, and on this was painted in letters two feet high a legend which it delighted him to read. Mogg's Purity and the Rights of Labor. Ah, if that could only be understood, there was enough in it to bring back an age of gold to suffering humanity. No other reform would be needed. In that short legend everything necessary for man was contained. Mr. Pyle and Mr. Trigger stood together one evening looking at the legend from a distance. Mogs and purity, said Mr. Pyle, in that tone of disgust and with that peculiar action which had become common to him in speaking of this election. He hasn't a ghost of a chance, said Mr. Trigger, who was always looking straight at the main point. "'Nor yet has Westmacott.' "'There's worse than Westmacott,' said Mr. Pyle. "'But what can we do?' said Trigger. "'Purity, purity,' said the old man. "'It makes me that sick that I wish there weren't such a thing as a member of Parliament. "'Purity and pickpockets is about the same. "'When I'm amongst them, I buttons up my breeches' pockets.' "'But what can we do?' asked Mr. Trigger again, in a voice of woe. Mr. Trigger quite sympathized with his older friend, but being a younger man, he knew that these innovations must be endured. Then Mr. Pyle made a speech of such length that he had never been known to make the like of before, so that Mr. Trigger felt that things had become very serious, and that, not impossibly, Mr. Pyle might be so affected by this election as never again to hold up his head in Percycross. "'Purity, purity,' he repeated. "'They're a-going on that way, Trigger, that the country soon won't be fit for a man to live in. And what's the meaning of it all? It's just this, that folks wants what they wants without paying for it. I hate purity. I do. I hate the very smell of it. It stinks.' When I see the chaps as come here and talk of purity, I know they means that nothing ain't to be as it used to be. Nobody is to trust no one. There ain't to be nothing warm, nor friendly, nor comfortable any more. This Sir Thomas you brought down is just as bad as that shoemaking chap. Worse, if anything. I know what's a-going on inside him. I can see it. If a man takes a glass of wine out of his bottle, he's a-asking himself if that ain't bribery and corruption. 
He's got a handle to his name and money, I suppose, and comes down here without knowing a chick or a child. Why isn't a poor man, as can't hardly live, to have his three half-crowns or fifteen shillings, as things may go, for voting for a stranger such as him? I'll tell you what it is, Trigger. I've done with it. Things have come to that in the borough that I'll meddle and make no more. Mr. Trigger, as he listened to this eloquence, could only sigh and shake his head. I did think it would last my time, added Mr. Pyle, almost weeping. Moggs would steal out of the house in the early morning, look up at the big bright red letters, and rejoice in his very heart of hearts. He had not lived in vain when his name had been joined, in the public view of men, with words so glorious, purity and the rights of labor. It contains just everything, said Moggs to himself, as he sat down to his modest lonely breakfast. After that, sitting with his hands clasped upon his brow, disdaining the use of pen and paper for such work, he composed his speech for the evening a speech framed with the purpose of proving to his hearers that purity and the rights of labor combined would make them as angels upon the earth. As for himself, Moggs, he explained in his speech, analyzing the big board which adorned the house, it mattered little whether they did or did not return him. But let them be always persistent in returning on every possible occasion purity and the rights of labor and then all other good things would follow to them. He enjoyed at any rate that supreme delight which a man feels when he thoroughly believes his own doctrine. But the days were very long with him. When the evening came, when his friends were relieved from their toil and could assemble here and there through the borough to hear him preach to them, he was happy enough he had certainly achieved so much that they preferred him now to their own presidents and chairmen. There was an enthusiasm for Moggs among the laboring men of Percycross, and he was always happy while he was addressing them. But the hours in the morning were long and sometimes melancholy. Though all the town was busy with these electioneering doings, there was nothing for him to do. His rivals canvassed, consulted, roamed through the town, as he could see, filching votes from him. But he, too noble for such work as that, sat there alone in the little upstairs parlor of the Cordwainer's Arms, thinking of his speech for the evening, thinking, too, of Polly Neefit. And then, of a sudden, it occurred to him that it would be good to write a letter to Polly from Percycross. Surely the fact that he was waging this grand battle would have some effect upon her heart. So he wrote the following letter, which reached Polly about a week after her return home from Margate. Cordwainer's Arms in Percycross, 14 October, 1860-. My dear Polly, I hope you won't be angry with me for writing to you. I am here in the midst of the turmoil of a contested election, and I cannot refrain from writing to tell you about it. Out of a full heart, they say, the mouth speaks, and out of a very full heart I am speaking to you with my pen. The honorable prospect of having a seat in the British House of Parliament, which I regard as the highest dignity that a Briton can enjoy, 
is very much to me, and fills my mind, and my heart, and my soul. But it all is not so much to me as your love, if only I could win that seat. If I could sit there in your heart and be chosen by you, not for a short seven years, but for life, I should be prouder and happier of that honor than of any other. It ought not perhaps to be so, but it is. I have to speak here to the people very often, but I never open my mouth without thinking that if I had you to hear me, I could speak with more energy and spirit. If I could gain your love and the seat for this borough together, I should have done more than than emperor or conqueror or high priest ever accomplished. I don't know whether you understand much about elections. When I first came here I was joined with a gentleman who was one of the old members. But now I stand alone, because he does not comprehend or sympathize with the advanced doctrines which it is my mission to preach to the people. Purity and the rights of labor, those are my watchwords. But there are many here who hate the very name of purity, and who know nothing of the rights of labor. Labor, dear Polly, is the salt of the earth, and I hope that some day I may have the privilege of teaching you that it is so. For myself, I do not see why ladies should not understand politics as well as men, and I think that they ought to vote. I hope you think that women ought to have the franchise. We are to be nominated on Monday, and the elections will take place on Tuesday. I shall be nominated and seconded by two electors who are working men. I would sooner have their support than that of the greatest magnate in the land. But your support would be better for me than anything else in the world. People here, as a rule, are very lukewarm about the ballot, and they seemed to know very little about strikes till I came among them. Without combination and mutual support, the working people must be ground to powder. If I am sent to Parliament, I shall feel it to be my duty to insist upon this doctrine in season and out of season, whenever I can make my voice heard. But, oh, Polly, if I could do it with you for my wife, my voice would be so much louder. Pray give my best respects to your father and mother. I am afraid I have not your father's good wishes. But perhaps if he saw me filling the honorable position of Member of Parliament for Percycross, he might relent. If you would condescend to write me one word in reply, I should be prouder of that than of anything. I suppose I shall be here till Wednesday morning. If you would say but one kind word to me, I think that it would help me on the great day. I am and ever shall be your most affectionate admirer, Ontario Moggs. Polly received this on the Monday, the day of the nomination, and though she did answer it at once, Ontario did not get her reply till the contest was over, and that great day had done its best and its worst for him. But Polly's letter shall be given here. To a well-bred young lady, living in good society, the mixture of politics and love which had filled Ontario's epistle might perhaps have been unacceptable. But Polly thought that the letter was a good letter, and was proud of being so noticed by a young man who was standing for Parliament. She sympathized with his enthusiasm, 
and thought that she would like to be taught by him that labor was the salt of the earth, if only he were not so awkward and long, and if his hands were habitually a little cleaner. She could not, however, take upon herself to give him any hope in that direction, and therefore confined her answer to the parliamentary prospects of the hour. Dear Mr. Moggs, she wrote, I was very much pleased when I heard that you were going to stand for a member of Parliament, and I wish with all my heart that you may be successful. I shall think it a very great honor indeed to know a member of Parliament, as I have known you for nearly all my life. I am sure you will do a great deal of good, and prevent the people from being wicked. As for ladies voting, I don't think I should like that myself, though if I had twenty votes I would give them to you, because I have known you so long. Father and mother send their respects, and hope you will be successful. Yours truly, Marianne Neefit, Alexandra Cottage, Monday. When Moggs received this letter he was, not unnaturally, in a state of great agitation in reference to the contest through which he had just passed, but still he thought very much of it and put it in his breast where it would lie near his heart. Ah, if only one word of warmth had been allowed to escape from the writer, how happy could he have been! Yes, he said scornfully, because she has known me all her life. Nevertheless, the paper which her hand had pressed, and the letters which her fingers had formed, were placed close to his heart. End of chapter 26 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina.